The following is a presentation of Gallery Church Downtown, part of a family of neighborhood churches seeking to display God's greatness to the world. For more information, please visit gcbdowntown.com. Two of their most valued elders left. <laughs> uh, I say that because it's painfully a joke, um, because... We have seen so much transition in the life of our church family, um, but in the midst of what God's been doing in our church over the last year, God is literally taking our, some of our elders and sending them to Cambodia. Um, and so I'm going to invite the Pritchard family, if they would please come up here and join me, and my wife, if she could come and join me as well. Um, we have a couple of things we want to, to say publicly as well as a gift to give them. Um, but we also want to take a moment in the midst of a, of a song that really does represent um, this family. Um, come and stand next to me, Brandon. That way your family falls in. Um, they've got four most beautiful girls. Um, good luck with all those weddings. We'll have a fun set up somewhere in the future. Um, uh, marry a rich king. Um, but, the, uh, but the Lord has been working in their family um, many of you have learned about Jesus through their teaching. Uh, many of you have learned what faithfulness and discipleship looks like from the things that they've not only shared with you with their mouth, but what you've observed in their family. Um, and this has been an emotional morning. Um, we had a sweet time with the girls before the service started. Um, we've grown to love them deeply, um, but there's no regrets. That's the thing I love is that we're sending them to represent Christ um, and so, Brandon, if you could just share with them briefly what you're going to be doing and the adventure you're sending your family on. And then, Ginger, I'm going to turn it over to you. The adventure that God's sending her to you. <laughs> yes. Um, edit, delete uh, what she said. So, Good morning. That'd be so sullen. We are celebrating, actually, um, as hard as the, I think the move is. Um, I think, first off, I'd just like to say thank you to Ginger and Ellis. I mean, Emily and I were visiting churches, you know, for a month at a time when we first moved here. And we couldn't get eye contact wherever we went. And that's not a knock on the churches we visited. But when we came here, we said, oh, my goodness, there's really people that love the Lord and that are actually interested in our lives. And that's just kind of an infectious um, personality that this body has. Uh, no matter who's in it. It's the culture that Gallery has, and I really appreciate Ellis and Ginger in setting that. So when you see values, you kind of roll your eyes because oftentimes they're not lived out. But I think here, the value of prayer, the value of relationship, the value of authenticity is actually happening here, and I think we're trying to live up to those values and keeping Jesus at the center. Um, so I'm leaving. I work for an organization called World Relief, and... Claire works there too (laughs) it's an amazing organization we're actually one of nine agencies that resettles refugees here in the United States as you can imagine that's been a struggle for us over the last um, couple years Um, but the other half of World Relief is an international NGO and so our mission is to empower the local church that solve the most vulnerable and so really what's unique about uh, I think this organization is that We're not just an international NGO that happens to be Christian, and we're not a missions agency, but really trying to spread the gospel, the whole gospel in word and deed, and trying to meet the needs of 
mothers and young children, uh, the economic needs of families that are struggling with agriculture, and doing it in Jesus' name. And actually trying to secure volunteers from local churches to go out into the community to be the light that we're intended to be. And so I think the weight of this assignment is the cross-cultural experience. Um, aside from that, we're going to continue to do what we've been doing here. Um, and that's just being fully ourselves in the community that, that we're living in. I'm going to keep going to work. I'll still be behind a laptop most days. <laughs> um, but it's going to be um, uh, quite different, right? It's, uh, it's Certainly it's Cambodia and not Baltimore. Um, so we're excited. We leave uh, Tuesday morning. Um, so this will be our last Sunday. Um, but Emily, any other words? Okay. Um, so, yeah, thank you. I, I think we'll try to post stuff on social media, um, send emails around, but we look forward to staying in touch, and we look forward to coming back sometime in the future. We don't know when, though. Um, we are so grateful to this church. We're just grateful for your presence. Um, however much we know you, uh, uh, we just really appreciate worshiping with you together, uh, the same Jesus uh, that we all know and love. Um, and we really appreciate, yeah, Ellison, Ginger, um, and others here at, in leadership and in volunteering opportunities to really make this place work and to really help us stay focused on the one that we really want to serve. So thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, wow. <laughs> All right, so we have just a few gifts, and I don't want to be lengthy, um, and you know me and my symbolism. Um, we want to start with this. If, uh, you might have noticed this morning that there are two new rocking chairs over on the wall. Um, you're not taking them to Cambodia. <laughs> uh, they're staying here, and they are to be a constant reminder of the Pritchard family. And we have a little tag that we have on it to remind you to pray for them as you rock in them, as you walk by them, um, symbolizing their, their service even in our gallery kids and just the way that they have loved on us as their children um, in this church family. We also want to give you um, this beautiful study um, about the names of God and include something even for your children. More than ever, you're going to need to know who God is and his faithfulness and um, know him in a more, even more personal way. Um, and then we also have uh, these kneeling pads that we want you to take with them, and they're from our, our staff and elders. And um, we, we just want you to be reminded as you kneel and pray for others that we are praying for you and that we thank our God for you, and we'll continue to give thanks. Thank we love you. you. Yeah. All right. Well, um, I've got to teach in just a few minutes, so I've got to get this frog out of my throat. But would you guys stand right down here? Um, and any of you that would like to show your support in prayer for them by a form of commitment, would you just stand and extend a hand towards them? Or if you know them well and you want to come and put a hand on them in prayer, we'd love for you to surround them together. Even if you don't and you want a spirit of prayer, I'll hold these for you guys. Okay? All right. Yes. And I just want to encourage you, if you're up close to them, to go ahead and pray out loud. And you can, and we're all going to do it at one time. And uh, so just make a joyful noise of praises to the Lord for this beautiful family. So let's pray together at one time, please. Hello, everyone. This is on, right? Yes, yeah. It is. Okay, perfect. Um, today's reading is in Matthew 5, verses 27 to 30. And if you've got the Bibles around the room, it's page 969. 
You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. God bless the reading of this word. Thank you, Emily, and I appreciate the text. Um, if anybody wants to leave right now, we'll close our eyes for a minute and let everybody walk out. Okay? I want to start with this because you will not fully appreciate where we're going today if you did not hear last week. But I do not have time today to go back and reteach Mark chapter 8 to us because Mark chapter 8 laid a foundation for why this subject matter even matters. Because at the end of the day, the question is, is do we follow Jesus on our own terms? Because the point on many occasions is to say, you just don't want to go to hell, you want to go to heaven, so believe in Jesus. And so that being true, there is also a life that we live until we are with Jesus forever in eternity. And so this talk is for people that believe in Jesus. This talk is for people that want to say, what do I do with God with my life? And there's a premise to this talk, an underlying issue that I felt like is as old as creation itself. And it is the phrase that was said to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden from a serpent in a tree. Did God really say? I feel like that the enemy is just as good with that question as he has ever been. Okay? And so... There's going to be moments in our time, in our interaction today, where in my best, I am going to try to represent Jesus. I want my words to be Jesus' words. I want my life to represent Jesus. And my family's sitting in the room here today. And so even with, and my mom's going to be here next week. So, um, (laughs) So here's the thing. I'm going to be as transparent and authentic with you as I can about my own life as I am talking to you about a topic that can be extremely painful. And so the actual topic for this teaching is the formation of our sexual life. Um, You are in this room. You are a sexual being. That's just the fact. That's just the way we were made. And so let me start with this. And this is a painful way for me to step into this, but I need to lay a foundation I did not see, to my best recollection, my first pornographic image until I was in seventh grade. I was in a neighborhood down on the Potomac River in a little area called um, Fort Washington, Maryland. And we lived on a cul-de-sac that was right on this little harbor off the Potomac River. And one of my best friends at the time that we rode the school bus together, he and I loved to fish. And his family had one of those aluminum flat-bottom boats that you had little paddles. They didn't give us a motor, but both of our parents were were boating families, and so we felt very comfortable on the water, and they would let me get out on this boat, and we would paddle out, and we would fish, and then one day, in the craziness of the moment, this kid just throws down a Playboy magazine in front of me, the Vanna White issue. That's how old I am. Some of you are like, who's Vanna White? Well, good. Don't, even, don't look it up. <laughs> Pat Sajak would be happy. You have no idea who that is, right? And so um, that's my first ever. I mean, I, it's, 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 it's like etched in my mind. And this is one of the things that's so painful about the subject matter, 
is most of the time when we talk about something like this, we want to act like as if once we've seen something, we can unsee it. Um, and so when I look at my life, though, I'm like, wow, in that moment, I didn't know what to do. So I just did what every 12-year-old boy would do with a friend in a boat, and we just turned the pages. It wasn't until my junior year of high school that I can recall my second interaction with pornography. When I was a junior in high school, we were at a family reunion. Can we just thank God for family? They just help us walk our spiritual life out in such a positive way. But there were so many people at this one particular relative's house of mine that when I had to go to the bathroom, and I was doing this serious potty dance, um, and my particular, I'm not trying to say names because I know a lot of my family listen to my podcast, and so I don't want to have extra issues later, but um, when when they found out that I needed to go badly and that all the other bathrooms that are normally taken were filled, they gave me permission to go to their master bedroom. And when I was in the master bedroom, they had a magazine rack next to the commode. And so I grabbed what I thought was a sports magazine that my relative had actually taken the cover off of and placed over top of another Playboy magazine. So here I am as a 17-year-old kid trying to spend a few moments to make myself available to go eat more food. And next thing I know, I'm picking up a magazine thinking I'm going to be looking at sports stars and reading statistics. And next thing you know, it's, it's just images after images after images. And I say this to you because in 18 years of my life, those are the only two times I can ever remember seeing pornography. 18 years of my life. I don't think that's very normal anymore. We live in what I believe is a sex-crazed culture. It's everywhere. It is a totally different world. I'm going to share with you a couple of things I pulled from the New York Times, and this is the first one from a lady named Maggie Jones, wrote an article, What Teenagers Are Learning from Online Porn, was the name of the article in, um, in the New York Times, and it was about American adolescents watching more pornography than their parents know, and it's shaping the ideas that their ideas about pleasure and power and intimacy, and can they be taught to see more critically? And in the article, it goes on to say this, for around two hours per week, and this is, this is a, in the article, it is talking about a school that has a sex ed class, and this is what the school is now doing in the sexual ed class. For around two hours per week, for five weeks, the students, sophomores, juniors, and seniors, take part in a porn literacy, which aims to make them savvier and more critical consumers of porn by examining how gender, sexuality, aggression, consent, race, queer sex, relationships, and body images are portrayed, or in this consent, in case consent, not portrayed in porn. Welcome to what I believe was a, sec- a successful sexual re- revolution in our country. Many of you are young enough that you may not even know the terms. There's a few of you that are my age or older, and when I say sexual revolution, you immediately go back, yeah, the 60s and 70s were amazing, right? But the rest of us are like, uh, you're talking about my parents, but this is what's happened. The sexual revolution, I believe, has become one of the most um, um, completed revolutions in world history. 
Uh, Mary um, Aberstein goes on in this article to say this, and she's defining the sexual revolution. The sexual revolution was the destigmatization and the the demystification of non-marital sex and the reduction of sexual relations in general to a kind of hygienic recreation in which anything goes as long as those involved are consenting adults. So this has happened. It is no longer a revolution that had an agenda. It is now a completed revolution. But a lot of people don't know that there was also another revolution taking place at the same time. Anybody over the age of 50 know what that movement was called? Who are we here to worship today? Jesus. So what was it called? The Jesus Movement. There was actually, at the same time as the hippies and the free sexuality movement was happening, at the same time, there were a group of Christians that were like, we've got to go against this. We've got to raise up and do something as a movement of our own. And so there's a documented Jesus movement happening at the same time in our country that the sexual revolution was happening, and by far, the Jesus movement lost. It's not even close. So... With the revolution suppressing the Jesus movement, we now live in a day where people are raised on porn, are encouraged for all types of sex and all types of life, are encouraged towards abortion and divorce and living together in multiple sexual partners. And to be honest with you, there's really not much difference in the church and in secular society from all the research that I've done for this particular teaching and all of the research organizations, the stats between people that believe in Jesus and people that don't believe in Jesus are fractions of a percentage different in variance. So that tells me a lot of things that I think is really important for me to say redundantly. You do not, those of you that believe in Jesus, participate with the same motivation that unbelievers do. I believe that many of you that are struggling with this, you struggle with it through pain, you struggle with it through shame, you struggle with it, but yet you just don't know that there's another way. And because you don't know there's another way that is life-giving, we continue down what everybody else is doing, but yet we keep Jesus in a different compartment of our life. There is a purpose to our struggle, but sex is eating us alive. It's producing shame by the bucketfuls. It's limiting our sense of authority in this world. Many of you do not look your neighbors in the face to say Jesus because you have a sexual guilt, a sexual shame that you just feel like, I just got to keep Jesus private. It's distorting our community life. There are many that come to church looking for relationships, and not all are for the right reasons. Some of you in this room have gone on dates with each other, and you've had sex with each other, and now worship is really awkward because you're not together anymore. You're not, you, know, you decided not, you weren't the best options for one another, and now you come in here, and you sit in one section, they sit in the other section, and because we've bowled out the room, it took you a few Sundays to figure out how you didn't have to make eye contact, Right? And so we carry that. It's destructive to our community. It destroys marriages. We'll talk about that. But what is the church to do against the culture that is discipling us 
to just be sexual consumers. If the culture is making disciples of us, what does the church actually do? And here's the thing. This is one lie that I wanted to address this week so that we could lay a foundation for where we're headed for the rest of the year. How many of you in here have heard that, that all sins are the same? Would you just show me by a raise of hand? Like, there is no sin that's different. And if I was to ask you to turn in your Bibles and show me where the Bible says that, could you do it? It's one of those myths, I believe, because I've read the Bible multiple times from cover to cover, and I've searched through, I've been writing this sermon for seven years. All right, and my wife is laughing because I have read dozens of books and referenced dozens of other books, reading all types of pastors' blogs and reading and listening to pastors that I respect that have been on the road ahead of me, and I've been delaying this sermon and delaying this sermon saying, God, one day you'll lay it on my heart to do it. And it has been become so obvious to me that it's something that I needed to step into. But I say all this to you because I want you guys to know that the Bible does not say all sins are equal. It is a myth. And if you have a question about that, we can talk about it next week after church. But all sin is not the same. When it comes to sexual sins in the Bible, the Bible teaches something very different. Everywhere else sin is addressed in the scripture, it says to resist temptation. But when it talks about sexual sin, it tells us to do what? Flee from it. Paul, who loved the Corinthian church, Paul looked at the Corinthian church and saw a church that was walking with power, that had authority, a church that had resources. They had all everything. I mean, it would have been like a mega church that had a budget. They couldn't spend all the money. They had the talent. They had multiple levels of worship teams. Like it, it, every time there was a worship leader, there were 10 just as good. This church was rich in the gifts, but they were terrible in sexual practice. And so Paul says to them in 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 12, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, feed for, food for the stomach and, and, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And, how, and however, excuse me, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Now, let me just stop here for a minute. This word bodies is actually a, a translated from a Greek word that can also be interpreted self. So when you hear this, I don't want you just to be thinking about flesh and bone, but he's talking about the fact of you, yourself, the person that you are. And then he goes on to say, shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never! Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality and all other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. And do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Sin has the power in a Christian to destroy our conscience, 
to destroy the vows we make with one another, to destroy our commitments, to destroy our families, to destroy the unity and the harmony in our faith communities. It has the power to destroy our devotion. It has basically the power to wipe out anything that's ahead of us if we take our eyes off of Jesus Christ. Christ has taken the power out of sin. The problem is, is that in the area of sexuality, we are not walking with Christ. We are wanting Christ to stay out of it. Because that is the way that the culture has been discipling us. We have to admit that the sexual revolution changed our parents, and it's changed the way that we now process sexuality in this world. Uh, Mary, in that article from the New York Times, goes on to say this, and this this, just made me weep. First, in contrary to conventional depiction, the sexual revolution has proved a disaster for humanity. And second, and this lady is not a believer, its weight has fallen, listen to this, the heaviest on the smallest and the weakest shoulders in society, and even as it has given extra strength to the already strong and the most predatory. Is that not true, what we're hearing in the news? Is that not true, what we're seeing um, with the Me Too movement and so many other ways right now? The sexual revolution has caused there to be almost seemingly impossible relationships between male and females in the workplace. It's making it impossible for men and women to live on the same street together. It's making it impossible for men and women to go to the grocery store together because predatory people are feeling empowered. People that are feeding it are feeling more equipped, and they are just going after it without any concern for anybody else. All right, so let me just say this, because I know some of you are here for the first time. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. This is half. Next week is the whole. Um, this is a talk for Jesus. It's a talk for us to keep our eyes on Jesus. And if that's who you came here thinking you were going to be a part of, I hope that you find a sense in us that we are willing to talk about everything Jesus said and did. Um, but I also want to say to you, if this is not a Jesus thing for you and you came at the invitation of a friend or you just happened to walk in for whatever reason, I just want to say to you, I also think just listening to this discussion could be beneficial to you because we're all feeling the effects of the sexual revolution. We have to have clarity whether you believe in Jesus or you don't. We need to have eyes to see. And I believe that the verses of Scripture I'm going to read, I believe the Jesus that we're going to look at, I believe that the testimony of our pain and guilt and shame is going to clarify what we believe is a way that we can be formed sexually into a life that proves that the tomb is empty and that Jesus is alive. I believe, and this is, it's just, it just sounds so weird rolling off my tongue. I said this sentence like 10 times already. And it still just doesn't seem like something that a pastor should say, and that might be an indictment on me. But I believe we can find good sexual practice. Can I tell you this? And this is being authentic. It is achievable. I can tell you that. I not only can show scripture to you, I can share with you my story of what God has done in my life with my wife, Ginger. And I want many of you that are newly married or you're engaged or you're whatever and your friends are saying, why are you doing that? 
I want you to say, my wife, not my wife, my pastor and wife. <laughs> like I said, I'm very nervous. I'm sweating like a dog up here. It's crazy. But my pastor and wife will be married for 24 years, and they're saying to us that every year can get better, not just in communication, but in intimacy. And that is not the message you're hearing from your friends. Your friends are saying to you, why are you limiting your options? Why are you going to step into something that's sure to fail? And I want you guys to know here in our church family, I want you to know that if you have or you desire to step into that, it can be marvelous. And it can be a joy. And thank you, Raquel, for being here today. I've missed my cheerleader. But there's the thing is you, you and I need to need to understand that there is a Christian vision for this. I agree with John Tyson. He pastors in New York and I've had the blessings of meeting with him, sitting at the table and being encouraged. And, and he reads more books than I could ever read. He reads like my wife. Like it takes me a week to read a book. She reads it in the day. And I'm like, how did you do that? And she could. I'm like, how did you remember all that? I'm like, I'm going back and rereading paragraphs and all this, but John's that way. And John's turned me on to a couple of things that I think are really important. And here's two things that he said that I'm like, yeah, that's it. Because of the sexual revolution, the church has responded primarily in two ways, fear or freedom. And so let me talk to you about fear just for a minute, because fear is that sex is bad and it needs to be avoided. Um, and that there are a lot of churches that act that way, pastors that talk that way. Even Jerome, all right, and I'm not talking about somebody in Baltimore. This guy lived thousands of years ago. He translated the Bible into the Latin Vulgate. Some of you that know church history might know this. It was the Bible for a thousand years. Jerome translated it into a language that the church used for a thousand... So I'm not talking about just some little guy down the street. This is a guy that's been massively used in church history that has laid foundations on how people have addressed translation and continue to take it to other languages and people groups around the world. So Jerome, from a standpoint, is a church hero, but Jerome had a lust issue that he writes about very clearly, and there's several things you can go and look up about him. But he lusted after women so badly that he rated them. If they were married, they were a certain number of points. If they were not married, they were another number of points. If they were certain ages, they were points. And, and so he would fast. He would, he would do all these things to try to overcome his lust. And he ended up, um, obviously, dying a miserable man, even though we've used many of his translations. But because of the way that he addressed sex, the church responded to him. And so they decided that they needed to legislate when you could have sex. Does that not sound like some of the churches you've been to? Let me just give you church history. This is what they said. You could not have sex in a marriage relationship or any, like they, any premarital sex was wrong in that church history, church, church history era. And so in marriage, they said Thursdays were out because it was the day Jesus was arrested. Fridays was the day that he died, so it needed to be kept for him. Saturdays were to honor the Blessed Virgin, and Sundays was the day of his resurrection. So Friday, Saturday, Sundays were out. No sex. Wednesdays, sometimes. <laughs> because of the church calendar year. You couldn't have sex on the first day of Lent and all that. And so it would actually, they said you could not have sex for the 40 days leading up 
to Easter because it was not healthy for you to have sex during that period of time. So not only were the Sundays out, which were supposed to be a break from your Lent fast, but it was a Sunday. So you could be fasting all week from your wife and be like, yes, it's Sunday. And she's like, it's Sunday. And you're like, oh, I can't even get a break. I got to wait till Easter, right? And so after, so they went on and then the days that any female impurity were out, you couldn't have any intercourse during those periods of time. So historians have actually gone to the calendar and mapped it out. And to a married relationship, because of Jerome, there were only approximately 44 days a year you could have sex as a married couple and be glorifying and honoring to God. That's fear. That is fear. That is a lie. That is not healthy. That is not. But that's how the church started to respond. Is, can now you see why the world revolted sexually? Philip Yancey goes on to say this. I know of no greater failure among Christians than in presenting a persuasive point of view on sexuality. Outside the church, people think that God is a great spoil sport of human sexuality, not its inventor. In a sex-saturated society, even true believers find it hard to accept that traditional Christian morality often offers the fullest and most satisfying life. The Pope utters pronouncements, the nomination issue position papers, and many Christians ignore them and follow the lead of the rest of society. Surveys reveal little difference between church attenders and non-attenders and the rates of premarital intercourse and cohabitation. Surveys are shown, also show that millions of people have left the church in disgust over his, his hypocrisy about sex, especially when priests and ministers fail to practice what they preach. Fear. Now, the other continuum is freedom. All right, that's the closest you'll ever hear me singing in this microphone. But I wasn't really singing. I was just shouting, right? Sex positive movement. This is what William Reich, who coined the word, defined it as. The sex positive movement does not, in general, make moral or ethical distinctions between heterosexual, homosexual sex or masturbation regarding these choices as a matter of personal preference. That's sexual freedom, according to him, sexual positive movement. Sexologist Carol Queen it is a simple yet radical affirmation that we each grow in our passions on a different medium, that instead of having two or three or even a half dozen sexual orientations, we should think of it in the terms of millions. Sex positive respects each of our unique profiles, even as we acknowledge that some of us have been damaged by a culture that tries to eradicate sexual differences and possibilities. Some people have asked me recently, why are you now doing this? Can I just tell you this is why I'm now doing this? Why is it so important for me to talk to you about what the world is discipling you towards sexually when Jesus has something I think he wants to offer us that's very important? My question to the freedom people is, are you really free? For those of you that walk that way, that you say it's all permissible, it's all good, that God really didn't say anything around sexuality? And is it really free to you? Do you feel free? Joan, uh, Joanna Cole says this, getting naked and having sex with strangers is hard. We portray it as fun and we pretend it's fun, but people crave intimacy, which is not easy to create in a hookup. That's why Britain just appointed a loneliness minister. 
that was really supposed to be funny. It was like a comic relief. I, you can go home this afternoon and Google Loneliness Minister Britain, and you will see a picture, and you will see a title and a job description. Because they can afford to appoint ministers like that, they have done so. Because the sexual revolution has left you one word, and one word alone, you are lonely. We are lonely. And in the midst of all the sexual contact, we are lonely. So a nation had to, pres- had to appoint a loneliness minister. Nancy Percy goes on to say, the same bleak view of sexuality is inculcated in even young children. A video put out by Christian's Television Workshop, widely used in sex education classes, defines sexual relations as simply something done between two adults to give each other pleasure. No mention of marriage or family or even a love or commitment. No hint that sex has rich purpose, um, that sheer sexual, uh, excuse me, no hint that sex has a richer purpose than sheer sexual satisfaction. We are in a deeply confused society that is training a generation or two behind us to be deeply confused. And if we're not careful, we're going to carry our confusion forward, and there will not be a Jesus. There will not be a creator, a sustainer. We are oversexed, we're deeply confused, and sex is selling everything. Bill Johnson goes on to say this, and this is really important. When you get rid of the creator, capital C creator, you get rid of design and purpose. When you get rid of purpose, you get rid of accountability. And when you get rid of accountability, you get rid of the need to answer for your choices. And when you remove the need for people to give an account to their lives, you remove the fear of God. That's the fear of God that is the beginning of wisdom. And when you have no fear of God and no wisdom, you are all left with a with with a what with is total confusion. Sorry, this is just really hard for me to. I believe this is the moment we found ourselves in. We have cut the Creator out of His creation. Therefore, what was once designed for a purpose is now being adapted to fit purposes that has absolutely, it was not the initial intent. So fear and freedom, it is in somewhere in between that that I believe Jesus begins to fit. I think Jesus does have a vision. That's why we're doing this over two weeks for the beauty and the power in our human sexuality. I believe Jesus offers us discipleship in this area and he offers us a way of forming our sexual lives to where you could say it is good. The way of Jesus doesn't just offer us morality. It offers us a better question. And this is the question I want you to keep in your minds this week and next week and the following week. And as we move towards Easter, who am I becoming? Who am I becoming? Don't come to me the next two weeks and say, is this sin? Is this sin? Is this a sin? Is this a sin? Because my answer to you is, I'm not going to answer that question. I'm just going to ask you, if you continue to participate in that activity, who are you becoming? It asks about our motives. It asks about our habits. It asks about our heart's desires. It asks about all of those things. And Paul loved the church in Thessalonia, and he was talking to them about being sexually formed in their relationship with one another. And he says this in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should, be, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not a passionate lust, like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. 
The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins. And so we we are told you and warned you before, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives us his Holy Spirit. I believe this is powerful. And there's two things that come out of this passage that we could spend a lot of time on over the next couple of weeks. But there's two things I want to draw your attention to. You can learn control. And you can learn to submit to the Holy Spirit. In the area of sexuality, you can learn to harness that engine, that drive. It's necessary that we do. We have to learn to control our bodies, much like gymnasts learn to control and balance themselves on a balance beam. They don't just walk up there and start tumbling and doing flips and all the stuff that you see that you're like, oh my goodness, they're landing on a four-inch wide beam. They spent years of their life from the time they were little training to be on a, a, a narrow and just a, a short distance where they can spin and flip and twirl and do that all at the same time and land on a four-inch beam because they discipline their bodies. So don't tell me that I can't control it. No, it's like, do you want to control it? Do you want to pursue it? Christians, I think, have a couple of things that shape their sexuality. First is sexuality. Our sex points us towards the story that we long for. All right, I want you to understand this. In our sexuality, we are desiring to be fully known. We have a desire to be fully known and fully understood and fully accepted and feel full beauty and full honor. And, and our sexuality is a gift to allow you to taste that. And when you can be naked with somebody and unashamed, it can be beautiful and it can be honoring and it can be right and it can be just. In the garden, they were naked and not ashamed. In our lives, we're naked and full of shame. The gospel, we believe, is about a God who sees us and embraces us as we are. The God of our lives accepts us. He sees us fully. We are fully loved. We are naked in front of him. And in Jesus, he fully accepts us. He embraces us. We don't have to cover up anymore. We are fully known by him. In the book, Rumors of Another World, it says this, the very word sex comes from the Latin verb that means to cut off or sever. The sexual impulses drive us to unite, to restore somehow the union that has been severed. Freud diagnosed the deep pain within us as longing for union with a parent. Jung diagnosed us as longing for union with the opposite sex, but the Christian sees a deeper longing for union with the God who created us. Sex points to the longing in us to be known and loved by God. It is also our, our Christian sexuality needs to be shaped holistically. It is not just a physical act. It is a heart, mind, soul, and strength act. And when you move it down to just technique, it takes out the heart, the mind, the soul, and it's not what God intended. And the best example of this came to me from a movie I watched a long time ago with Russell Crowe in it. It was called A Beautiful Mind. He was the mathematician story of John Natch, I think was his name. And there's a scene in a bar where he says this. I don't have the words to say whatever it is that is necessary to get you into bed. So could you pretend that I said those things so that we can skip to the part where we exchange bodily fluids? 
you know, some of you really don't know what to do with a quote like that in church, but I just want to tell you this, how bad we've gotten. Because there are a lot of people right now in and around us, and maybe even some of us, where you've been approached like that. That's, you have just been an object of somebody else's pleasure, not somebody that needed to be fully known. The third part of this is not just the holistic integration and the sexuality points to our desires, but it's also tried to, tied to our transformation. Last week, I had a cookie and a mixed kale salad. All right. My wife corrected me when I got home. She's like, you know what? This, you said kale, 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 but the box you bought said mixed kale. So for those of you that didn't get kale, I am sorry. I hope you weren't allergic to the spinach leaf that you got or whatever it was that you took with you. But here's what I want to say to you. Somehow, with us learning to say no, we transform. The no is powerful to a Christian. When you and I learn to say no to things that we, quote, have the freedom to run after, something special begins to happen. And where you are aggressive and angry, you become gentle and kind. Where you become self-seeking, you become self-denying and self-serving. When you learn to say no. We have to figure out a way within the church for us to say we're going to say no. Like, why else does the Bible tell from the Old Testament and the New Testament for them to fast? Say no to food for a period so that your heart can be what? Transformed. Like, so I'm saying no, but yet somehow when it relates to our sexual practices, we haven't connected the fact that, wait a minute, I might actually grow if I learn to say no. Self-control, self-sacrifice, compassion, forming our character. A witness, we also, the fourth thing could be a witness in the world. The church is to be a witness to the world, a place where we encounter culture, where God is a restorer and he makes us whole. The testimony of the church should be that they are lovers of God and they are lovers of each other. They love everyone and they welcome them to their table. They care for their own children and other people's children, and they have a faithful marriage bed. That would be an amazing testimony of a local church. What better way to show the world that the tomb is empty and that Jesus is alive than for a church to be sexually pure and financially generous? I mean, so you guys look at it. There's so many pastors that are mocked nowadays because they want a $53 million plane. You know, there's so many places where it's all about keeping the money rather than giving it away. And that's not just because churches are doing it, but we as individuals are doing it. There's no better example for us as a church to shine brightly in Baltimore than for us to be a sexually pure people and for us to be a highly generous people. It is not about getting as much as you can. It is about giving as much as you can. So we struggle to live this way. So today I'm now going to talk about three things Porn, masturbation, dating, premarital sex. Next week, I'm going to talk to you about homosexuality, gender identity, and a few other things that I'm having a hard time saying this morning. So let's start with porn. 
John Meza says this, the more society loses touch with reality, especially in relationships, the more people do not know how it is supposed to be and how to react with each other. The more they turn to porn, they look at this fantasy and believe that it's a reality and they retreat farther and farther and farther into illusion because porn can never be real. It does not work in real life. Porn is a sickness. And Chris Hedges goes on to say this, and this is shocking. The largest users of internet porn are between the ages of 12 and 17. A porn producer are increasingly targeting adolescents. Porn targets the mid-teens to the mid-20s. The number one word based upon the stats that I was looking at searched on porn websites is the word teen. We live in a culture today that's trying to destroy our children. This is the first generation that is being raised on violent images of sex. And just in case I might be not painting that and it seems like 50 shades of gray to you, we're in serious trouble by what we're setting our eyes upon. I've had women say to me in in counseling, I feel pressured to do things I'm highly uncomfortable with because my husband watches porn. So that sets the standard for our marriage bed. Porn is destroying our culture, and it's sad. It's releasing these dopamines in us that I can't fully comprehend because I need you in the medical world to explain it more fully, but it's powerful. And the problem with dopamine is it takes a stronger stimulus to continue to produce the same level of dopamine. So people are getting involved in things that needs more and more and more, and before long, the same thing that was satisfying them no longer satisfy them, and it is a runway to a hole that you can't get out of. It hurts us. It is hurting us as individuals. It's hurting our relationships and it's hurting our culture. Porn is only allowing people to be viewed as objects of pleasure. Sixty percent of the marriages that end in divorce divorce because somebody's addicted to porn. Masturbation. Now the Bible actually doesn't use the word, and to be honest, I wish it had. It made this a lot easier. There is a passage in the Old Testament that people have used as a way of saying that it was about masturbation, but it actually was a marriage-related issue in the Old Testament. It doesn't. Re- so the people that have quoted it out of context, in my opinion, um, I don't think it impacts us. But C.S. Lewis did say something about masturbation. And some of you are like, C.S. Lewis. Um, well, he should be a writer in the Bible, in my opinion. He's an anointed um, But before I read to you his quote, I want to give you a definition of sin from St. Augustine. St. Augustine said this about sin. Sin is love turned in on itself. Process that just for a minute. Sin is love turned in on itself. Now listen to C.S. Lewis. This is from a writing that he wrote to a young man he was counseling before he got married. He says, for me, the real evil of masturbation would be that it takes an appetite which in lawful use leads the individual out of himself to complete and correct his own personality in that of another. And finally, in children and even in grandchildren, and it turns it back. It sends the man back into the prison of himself, there to keep a harem of imaginary brides. And this harem, once admitted, 
um, works against his ever getting out and really uniting with a real woman. And for the harem is always accessible, always subservient, calls for no sacrifices or adjustments, and can be endowed with erotic and psychological attractions which no woman can ever rival. And among those shadowy brides, he is also adorned, excuse me, is always adorned, always the perfect lover, and no demand is made in his on his unselfishness, no mortification ever imposed on his vanity. And in the end, they become merely the medium through which he increasingly adores himself. It is not only the faculty of love, which is thus sterilized, forced back on itself, and also the faculty of imagination. The true exercise of imagination, in my view, is A, to help us understand other people, and B, to respond to, and some of us, to produce art. But it has also a bad use to provide for us a shadowy form, a substitute of virtues, successes, distinctions of criteria which ought to be sought outside the real world. Example, picturing, picturing all I do if I were rich instead of earning savings, like those people that dream about winning the mega millions, right? Masturbation involves this abuse of imagination and erotic matters which I think is bad in itself and thereby encourages a similar abuse of it in all spheres. After all, almost the main work of the life is to come out of ourselves, out of the little dark prison we are born into. Masturbation is to be avoided as all things that are to be avoided that retard this process. The danger is not that of coming to love, excuse me, the danger is that of coming to love the prison. It's personal letters that he wrote. The driving question for, our Christ, for us as Christians is not, what am I doing? It is, who am I becoming? How is this activity I'm participating forming me? How is it shaping me? What is it doing to me? Ephesians 5.3, but among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. How are you wiring your brain? Who are you becoming? And are you becoming more like Christ? All right, dating and pre-marriage. Dating is a word that appears for the first time around 1914. Up to that point, something had obviously changed. Before that, men would go to a family to petition for a wife. He would go and prove his worthfulness his worthiness, his skill, his character to the family, brothers, sisters, mom, dad, the whole match till 1914. And in 1914, we're like, that's too hard. I would rather spend Mad's amount of money. I would rather walk away from that family, ignore them, have fun, get her to love me because I'm fun instead of character which is now added to what is called the hookup culture. And the more I read about the hookup culture, the more I was just blown to tears because in the hookup culture, it has now become Amazon Prime. You can have the guy or the girl that you want delivered in two days. The hookup culture, according to Vanity Fair, not a Christian literature. There have been two major transitions. Now listen, how many major transitions have there been? According to secular writing people, there have been two major transitions in heterosexual mating in the course of the last four million years. 
And he says, the first was around 10,000 to 15,000 years ago in the agricultural revolution when we became less migratory and more settled, leading to the establishment of marriage as a cultural contact. And the second major transition is with the rise of the Internet. It was in an article called Tinder and the Hookup Culture in Vanity Fair. In four million years, their opinion, two times, and you're now living in the second one in 10,000 to 15,000 years based upon their math. It also went on in this article to say this, and this was just shocking to me. Guys view everything as a competition. That part wasn't shocking. We elaborate, excuse me, he went on, the article writer, he elaborates with his deep, reassuring voice. Who slept with the hottest girls? With these dating apps, he says, you're always sort of prowling. You could talk to two or three girls at a bar and pick up the best one, or you could swipe a couple hundred people a day. The sample size is so much larger. It's setting up two to three Tinder dates a week, and chances are sleeping with all of them. So you can take up to 100 girls that you've slept with in a year. Tinder hookup culture. It's rare. Now, ladies, just so you know, it's not all about the guys. It's rare for women in our generation to meet a man who treats her like a a priority instead of an option. It went on to say this. A few young women admitted to me that they use dating apps as a way to get free meals. I call it Tinder food stamps. (laughs) With all the laughter, my heart just weeps over this. It just weeps. Who are you becoming? Who are you becoming? Do we date for godly intimacy or do we date for selfish reasons? We have to stop dating for erotic reasons. You've all heard about agape, phileo, eros. I think it's a great way of looking at these types of love. How do we as Christians posture our heart to be a a self-sacrificing lover? How do we posture ourselves to build the deepest friendships? And then how do we posture ourselves to enjoy one another in intimacy? We need a rightly ordered love, agape, phileo, eros. It needs to be a part of it. It can't just be the eros. It will destroy us. Who are we becoming? Premarriage sex. Jonathan Graff says this in Divine Sex, which is a great book, by the way. I think you guys might want to pick this one up. If intimate relationships were mortgages, we might call these subprime commitments. They are high-risk projects with little or no collateral security. Unfortunately, like some prime mortgages, these relationships are designed to fail. So in premarital relationships, premarital sex, these are some stats, okay? I'm just I'm quoting to you statistics. One in five cohabitating relationships end in marriage. One in five end in marriage. Cohabitating significantly increases the likelihood of divorce. A woman who cohabitates multiple times before marrying divorces twice as frequently as those who did not live with their husband before they got married. In serial monogamy, that's when a string of consensual sexual relationships actually hinders eventual marital satisfaction, while sexual experiences before marriage is a good indicator for an increased likelihood of infidelity in the marriage. Those were just some statistics I read that I felt like I needed to share. This makes sense to me. I hope it's making sense to you. Um, Tim Keller said this. 
When the Bible speaks of love, it measures it primarily not by how much you want to receive, but how much you are willing to give yourself to somebody. How much are you willing to lose for the sake of this person? How much are your, of your freedom are you willing to forsake? And how much of your precious time, emotion, and resources are you willing to invest in this person? First Thessalonians 4, do not take advantage of a brother or sister. We need to get a sex vision. We need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, and we need to develop some healthy practices. What is the sexual diet turning us into? Matthew 5, 8 says this, Blessed are the pure in heart. Now look at the promise, for they will see God. Some of us in here right now might be saying, I just don't see God anywhere. This is hard. We are wanting our church to create a different culture. We're wanting our church to be a Jesus-centered sexual culture. So we must learn to follow Jesus together. We must, we need to place, we need to be a place of joy and delight. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some of those who have nothing prepared. Send some to those who have Nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Jeremiah thirty three eleven. The sounds of joy and gladness, the voice of the bride and the bridegroom, and the voice of those who bring thank offerings in the house of the Lord, saying, Give thanks to the Lord Almighty, for the Lord is good. His love endures forever, for I will restore the fortunes of the land as they were before, says the Lord. Neurobiologist Jonathan Grant says this, Neurobiologists have shown that, the, that while most brain development stops sometime in childhood, the brain's joy center. Did you know you had a joy center? Thank you for laughing at that. Located and observable in the right orbital prefrontal cortex. And for the 20 people in here that know where that is, I'm glad that I just said something you can understand. Is the only part of the brain that never loses its capacity to grow. Listen, that means no matter how old you can get, you can experience joy. And in an increasing fashion, that is not what we're hearing. We are losing our joy by the bucketfuls and not gaining our joy by the bucketfuls. But if Jesus' promises are true, we could be like Paul who was chained up and being physically abused and being able to say, the joy of the Lord is my strength. I can, I can count the joy. Let me number the ways that God is being faithful to me. But yet he was being beaten and persecuted. Why? Because we have the capacity for our joy to continue to increase. We need to be a church full of joy. All right, I'm going to close. And I've asked Genki and Mitsumi to help me pronounce this because to me it was the most beautiful way to end this talk as we pause and get ready for next week. This is called Kintugi. Kintugi? All right, but she practiced with me, I promise. But it is a beautiful Japanese art form that deserves reverence and restoration. It's a joy, it's, it's, it, they restore broken dishes. And for those of you that are experiencing hurt and pain because of my words today, let these images give you hope for the beauty of how God can restore us. In this Japanese art form, they take precious metals and bond what was broken back together. 
I want you guys to know, they don't make something new from the precious metals. They take the old, broken pieces and bond it together into something unique and beautiful and priceless because it's a one-of-a-kind piece. There will never be another piece like it. And we are a room full of people here this morning, and we are all broken pieces, and we are all unique, and we can all be restored, and we can all be beautiful, and we can all grow in joy and delight. I don't care how much you've been hurt, how much you've been abused. I don't care how much you've been the hurter, the abuser, the powerful one. We can be shaped and renewed and put the precious metal of Jesus Christ inside of us through the power of the Holy Spirit, and we can become a priceless child of the living God. That's who we can be. So I don't care what you've done or where you've been or what you're experiencing, I just want you guys to know, in Jesus Christ, it is true. It is powerful, and it is love. Let's pray. Father, as we get ready to sing and come to the Lord's table, I just ask in Christ's name that you would make us, as you've promised, into these priceless works of art that you call your sons and daughters. We're not just art. We're better than that. We are your children, and you can restore us and make us whole. And so, Father, would you please help us to shape the sexual vision of Jesus? Would you help us to establish a culture in our church family? We can't preach this message to people that don't believe in Jesus. This is for us. Father, would you let this be true in us? Would, you, would we have a testimony of being a pure people, a people that value commitment and vows to one another? Father, would you heal the brokenhearted today? Would you release all guilt and shame in Jesus' name? I've asked.